0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car Was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that examines parapsychology and the unexplained to answer the question, why do people believe weird things? I'm Kean, and this episode, uh, following on from several which found me traipsing around the UK in search of strange stories, well, this one finds me back in the cabin somewhere in deepest, darkest Essex. There's a bit of a gale blowing outside. In fact, there's one of... Uh, One of the biggest storms of the early year is supposed to be blowing in tonight and it sounds outside as though it's just gearing up. Fortunately I have the fire going here and uh, hopefully the windows will hold. This evening I'm drinking Life and Death Pale Ale. It's an IPA from Vocation Brewing. Um, It's fairly strong 6.5 but it comes in a small can and it's a little bit fruity which is not usually my thing but I'm enjoying it so far. Now, when I was a student in Cork City back in the day, I played with a rough and ready, let's call them, folk band by the name of the Thirsty Scholars. We were named after the the name of a pub that we first played in, and I had a song which I had half written for the band uh, called The Gallows Tree. I say half written because I put a melody to it, but the lyrics I took from a poem a poem that was written by a 19th century Irishman, traveller, adventurer and writer by the name of Fitzjames O'Brien. I was really fascinated by Fitzjames O'Brien at the time. Uh, He seems to me always to have been a a supremely interesting character and a really, really interesting person from Irish history, but one whose time hasn't really come. There's not a whole lot known about him. Uh, When you research him online, you find more or less the same few facts repeated over and over again. Um, I think, potentially, it could be a really, really interesting sort of a postgraduate project for some uh, English student to take on, if indeed that hasn't been done already. If I have enough guts, I'll record a version of the song and play that for you at the end of the episode. Uh, So what is there to say about Fitzjames O'Brien and what is his connection to White Atlantic Weird? Well, we do occasionally uh, take a... An episode to read a classic uh, short story. My own particular interest of course is the late Victorian era early Edwardian. To me that's really the time of the, the classic uh, ghost stories or t- stories of the supernatural or early science fiction. I've always been a huge fan of early science fiction when I was a kid I read all of the classic Jules Verne and H.G. Wells type stuff and Discovering Fitz James O'Brien years later, it really felt like he was a, like a, like a lost treasure because he fit in so well with that whole era of um, early science fiction. So what do we know about this man, FitzJames O'Brien? Not a whole lot. He was born in, in October 1826, uh, and he did a lot of things in his life. So he, was, he seems to have been the son of a lawyer and um, from a family in Cork, actually, like myself, Though I don't know exactly where. I don't know whether he was from the city or or from one of the smaller towns. But he, as a young man, he attended uh, what I know as Trinity College, what he he recorded as being University of Dublin, though those are essentially the same thing. And it says, according to Wikipedia, he was believed to have been a soldier in the British Army for a period of time, though I've not been able to back that up with any any other evidence. It just goes to show how little really is known about this guy. But what is known and what is agreed upon by various sources is that uh, upon finishing his time at Trinity, he went to London to become a journalist, uh, and he was given an inheritance of about £8,000, which he seems to have squandered uh, in between two or four years, depending on who you're reading, which I suppose in those days would have been quite an achievement to spend that much money in just a few years. Whatever the case, uh, by 1852... He had emigrated to the United States. Uh, He changed his name at this point because he seems to have been born Michael O'Brien, at which point he changed his name to Fitz James uh, when he went to America. And it sounds as though he spent most of his time there in the state of New York, where he managed to cut a bit of a figure. He was trying very hard to break into the literary high society of the eastern uh, US, and he seems to have had some success. He was writing and publishing in the New York Times, Um, And Harper's Magazine and he, at at this time he wrote some of his pieces which are still remembered today and I think probably the main, I mean he did a lot of things with poetry and um, he did writing for the the World's Fair of 1851 but the thing for which he's most remembered today, if he's remembered at all, are his sort of early proto-science fiction and I have to say uh, when I discovered this years ago I really felt as though some of these stories really stand up there with early hg wells now he's coming up with new ideas uh, in science fiction which hadn't happened before so for example wells is celebrated for many reasons but chief among them is like the sheer variety of his creations he invented pretty much you know in just a few short years he invented um the alien invasion he invented the time travel story and many many more which we still remember and which are still influential but Fitz James O'Brien in his own small way for a guy who uh, wasn't hugely well known in his day and is pretty much forgotten now he crafted some really really fantastic um, short stories especially some early science fiction so his most well known story if anyone has heard of him at all is called The Diamond Lens from 1858 this is an absolutely fantastic story you can get it anywhere online and I heavily recommend that you check that out I would love to do a a recording of it but it's very long I just don't think I'm up to the task yet it takes quite a lot out of me to do um, some of the readings and uh, maybe I'll work up to the Diamond Lens one of these days but it's a classic early science fiction short story where um, a slightly unhinged slightly socially aloof young man who's a scientist and he's obsessed with microscopy um uh, fashions a, a new kind of lens for himself which allows him to see smaller details than ever have been seen before. So he's got a more powerful microscope than anyone has ever used before but there's a sort of a moral angle to the story where he has to do something terrible in order to, to acquire the lens which unfortunately results in a little bit of antisemitism in the story which I suppose was pretty common in those days and Wells himself is supposed to have used a bit of antisemitism in The Invisible Man um, but what happens next in The Diamond Lens is that the main character stares into a Petri dish and starts seeing a tiny little world, um, a little bit like, if you know, that Halloween Simpsons The Genesis Tub, where Lisa discovers a, a civilization of people in, inside a, living on her tooth, if I recall. Except, of course, this being a sort of a gothic-era um, morality tale, He discovers a tiny little woman living inside the drop of water that he's studying in the Petri dish and he falls in love with her and from there on his sanity lapses and uh, I won't spoil anything but it's a tremendously good story and very much worth tracking down. He then wrote a story called What Was It? A Mystery which uh, was published in Harper's Magazine in 1859 and that's the story we're going to read tonight. Before I get to it though I'd better finish up on what happened to Fitz James O'Brien himself So he spent several years in New York trying very hard to break into the literary scene, as I've said. He was hanging out with uh, a group known as the Bohemians, who were kind of up-and-coming writers at the time. Now, according to some sources, he was well in there with the literati of the city, but according to other sources, he was um, always disappointed by uh, failing to make his reputation or to really make any money out of his publications. And what seems to... I mean, it's entirely possible that both of these are true, but what seems to support the second idea is that when the American Civil War broke out in 1861, uh, O'Brien volunteered himself, which, again, doesn't sound like the the thing a man with uh, a lot of money and a stable income would do if he didn't have to, unless he felt uh, particularly patriotic, which uh, we don't really have any information about. He is incidentally recorded very often as being an American writer by people who either didn't know his uh, Cork origin or who just are happy to take any immigrant who makes his way in America as being uh, an American, which seems to have been a fairly common way of looking at it once upon a time, though. Not so much right now, I feel. In any case, uh, his American Civil War adventures, so he joins the 7th Regiment of the New York National Guard because apparently he was uh, hoping for some action so he according to Wikipedia he was then stationed at Camp Cameron outside Washington DC for 6 weeks when his regiment returned to New York he received an appointment on the staff of General Frederick W Lander and he was severely wounded in a skirmish uh, in February 1862 and by April he died of tetanus at Cumberland Maryland So again you have this character living a pretty pretty exotic and exciting life you know starting off in Cork He then lived in briefly in in Limerick, uh, you know, was tearing up the scene and splashing out his inheritance and living large in London, and finally having adventures in America with the literati, and finally in the American Civil War. A little bit of a real-life Harry Flashman, if you know what I mean, a famous fictional character who has uh, adventures across the British Empire in the 19th century and manages to show up um, at just about every significant military event of that time. Including the American Civil War. So yeah, Fitz James O'Brien has always uh, struck me as perhaps a bit of a real-life Harry Flashman So to the story, what was it? A mystery a couple of things to say about this first This is one of the stories that makes O'Brien a little bit of a pioneer because it is uh, according to many sources one of the earliest if not the earliest known uh, case of invisibility being used as a, a trope in fiction an idea in, in a story so some more famous ones which came out after this were Guy de Maupassant was a famous uh, turn of the century fin de siècle Paris writer uh, who wrote a famous story called The Horla um, which I have read when I was a kid and I don't think I'll ever read it again it's very hard going but that's a story about a man descending into madness uh, and and being convinced that some invisible entity is tormenting him That story is from 1887, so that's quite a few decades after uh, O'Brien's story. Another very famous uh, short story dealing with invisibility is uh, The Damned Thing by Ambrose Bierce, who also is is an incredibly super interesting character, uh, and also uh, a man who went through the American Civil War, though he survived, and a lot of his stories that he was famous for um, involved his memories of the American Civil War. His most famous short story is, is undoubtedly... Uh, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge which has been uh, filmed and repeated and is often anthologized. so The Damned Thing is another story about uh, a strange invisible creature it's got a lot more humour in it perhaps than O'Brien's story does but it's quite a bit later, it's from 1893 and in 1897 we have The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells which probably to this day remains the most well known case of invisibility being used in, in fiction so, yeah, we have a case here of uh, O'Brien being ahead of the curve and introducing a pretty key, important, and interesting trope of science fiction into the mix quite early on in the mid 19th century. Now, one other thing that's worth mentioning about the story before we get stuck in is that some people also consider this story to be the earliest um, insertion of a psychic detective in fiction. Now, on my old podcast strange ireland we did a long episode which i might put up on this stream sometime uh, which included a, a long section on the history of psychic detectives in fiction i believe it was an episode about another irish writer joseph sheridan Lefanu and um, he of course wrote a book called through a glass darkly which featured a bunch of short stories held together by this kind of framing narrative of a man named dr martin Heselius, who at the time was one of the earliest what we'll call psychic detectives, not like the ones you see now who like try and solve crimes using psychic abilities. We're talking, of course, about more like Sherlock Holmes type detectives who go and investigate cases of hauntings and supernatural things. And um, if it's true that What Was It, uh, the, short, the short story we're about to read, uh, if you believe that that does indeed contain a genuine uh, bona fide <laughs> uh, psychic detective, i.e. somebody who deliberately tracks down cases of the unusual uh, or supernatural and tries to figure out what's really going on, well then, it sounds like we have all those other cases, including what Dr. Martin Hesely is uh, beaten by quite a few decades. So with that in mind, uh, with the gale blowing outside, with the fire roaring, and with a fine ale in my hand, we're going to take on the short story, What Was It? by Fitzjames O'Brien. It is, I confess, with considerable diffidence that I approach the strange narrative which I am about to relate. The events which I purpose detailing are so extraordinary and unheard of a character that I am quite prepared to meet with an unusual amount of incredulity and scorn. I accept all such beforehand. I have, I trust, the literary courage to face unbelief. I have, after mature consideration, resolved to narrate in as simple and straightforward a manner as I can compass some facts that passed under my observation in the month of July last and which, in the annals of the mysteries of physical science, are wholly unparalleled. I live at number 26th Street in this city. The house is in some respects a curious one. It has enjoyed for the last two years the reputation of being haunted. It is a large and stately residence surrounded by what was once a garden but which is now only a green enclosure used for bleaching clothes. The dry basin of what had been a fountain and a few fruit trees, ragged and unpruned, indicate that this spot in past days was a pleasant, shady retreat, filled with fruits and flowers and the sweet murmur of waters. The house is very spacious. A hall of noble size leads to a vast spiral staircase winding through its centre, while the various apartments are of imposing dimensions. It was built some fifteen or twenty years since by Mr, the well known New York merchant, who five years ago threw the commercial world into convulsions by a stupendous bank fraud. Mr, as everyone knows, escaped to Europe and died not long after of a broken heart. Almost immediately after the news of his decease reached this country, and was verified, The report spread in 26th Street that number was haunted. Legal measures had dispossessed the widow of its former owner, and it was inhabited merely by a caretaker and his wife, placed there by the house agent into whose hands it had passed for purposes of renting or sale. These people declared that they were troubled with unnatural noises. Doors were opened without any visible agency. The remnants of furniture scattered through the various rooms were, during the night, piled one upon the other by unknown hands. Invisible feet passed up and down the stairs in broad daylight, accompanied by the rustle of unseen silk dresses, and the gliding of euless hands upon the massive balusters. The caretaker and his wife declared that they would live there no longer. The house agent laughed, dismissed them, and put others in their place. The noises and supernatural manifestations continued. The neighbourhood caught up the story, and the house remained untenanted for three years. Several persons negotiated for it, but somehow, always before the bargain was closed, they heard the unpleasant rumours and declined to treat any further. It was in this state of things that my landlady, who at that time kept a boarding house in Bleecker Street and who wished to move further uptown, conceived the bold idea of renting number 26th Street. Happening to have in her house rather a plucky and philosophical set of boarders, she laid down her scheme before us, stating candidly everything she had heard respecting the ghostly qualities of the establishment to which she wished to remove us. With the exception of two timid persons, a sea captain and a returned Californian, who immediately gave notice that they would leave, All of Mrs. Moffat's guests declared that they would accompany her in her chivalric incursion into the abode of Spirits. Our removal was effected in the month of May, and we were all charmed with our new residence. The portion of 26th Street where our house is situated, between 7th and 8th Avenues, is one of the pleasantest localities in New York. The gardens back of the house running down nearly to the Hudson, form, in the summertime, a perfect avenue of verdure. The air is pure and invigorating, sweeping as it does, straight across the river, from the Weehawken Heights, and even the ragged garden, which surrounded the house on two sides, although displaying on washing days rather too much clothesline, still gave us a piece of green sward to look at, and a cool retreat in the summer evenings, where we smoked our cigars in the dusk, and watched the fireflies, flashing their dark lanterns in the long grass. Of course, we had no sooner established ourselves at number... than we began to expect the ghosts. We absolutely awaited their advent with eagerness. Our dinner conversation was supernatural. One of the boarders who had purchased Mrs Crow's Nightside of Nature for his own private delectation was regarded as a public enemy by the entire household for not having bought twenty copies... The man led a life of supreme wretchedness while he was reading this volume. A system of espionage was established, of which he was the victim. If he incautiously laid the book down for an instant and left the room, it was immediately seized and read aloud in secret places to a select few. I found myself a person of immense importance, it having leaked out that I was tolerably well versed in the history of supernaturalism, and had once written a story entitled the pot of tulips, for Harper's Monthly, the foundation of which was a ghost. If a table or a wainscot panel happened to warp when we were assembled in the large drawing room, there was an instant silence and everyone was prepared for an immediate clanking of chains and a spectral form. After a month of psychological excitement, it was with the utmost dissatisfaction that we were forced to acknowledge that nothing in the remotest degree approaching the supernatural had manifested itself. Once the black butler asseverated that his candle had been blown out by some invisible agency while he was undressing himself for the night, but as I had more than once discovered this gentleman in a condition when one candle must have appeared to him like two, I thought it possible that, by going a step further in his potations, he might have reversed his phenomena and seen no candle at all where he ought to have beheld one. Things were in this state when an incident took place so awful and inexplicable in its character that my reason fairly reels at the bare memory of the occurrence. It was the 10th of July. After dinner was over, I repaired with my friend Dr Hammond to the garden to smoke my evening pipe. The doctor and myself found ourselves in an unusually metaphysical mood. We lit our large meershams filled with fine Turkish tobacco, we paced to and fro, conversing. A strange perversity dominated the currents of our thought. They would not flow through the sunlit channels into which we strove to divert them. For some unaccountable reason, they constantly diverged into dark and lonesome beds where a continual gloom brooded. It was in vain that, after our old fashion, we flung ourselves on the shores of the east and talked of its gay bazaars, of the splendours of the time of Harun, of harems and golden palaces. Black gaffrites continually arose from the depths of our talk and expanded like the one the fishermen released from the copper vessel until they blotted everything bright from our vision. Insensibly we yielded to the occult force that swayed us and indulged in gloomy speculation. We had talked some time upon the proneness of the human mind to mysticism and the almost universal love of the terrible when Hammond suddenly said to me, What do you consider to be the greatest element of terror? The question, I own, puzzled me. That many things were terrible, I knew. Stumbling over a corpse in the dark, beholding, as I once did, a woman floating down a deep and rapid river with wildly lifted arms and awful upturned face, uttering as she sank shrieks that rent one's heart, while we, the spectators, stood frozen at a window which overhung the river at a height of sixty feet, unable to make the slightest effort to save her, but dumbly watching her last supreme agony and her disappearance. A shattered wreck with no life visible, encountered floating listlessly on the ocean, is a terrible object, for it suggests a huge terror, the proportions of which are veiled. But it now struck me for the first time that there must be one great and ruling embodiment of fear, a king of terrors to which all others must succumb. What might it be? To what train of circumstances would it owe its existence? "'I confess, Hammond,' I replied to my friend, "'I never considered the subject before, "'that there must be one something more terrible than any other thing, I feel. "'I cannot attempt, however, even the most vague definition.' "'I am somewhat like you, Harry,' he answered. "'I feel my capacity to experience a terror "'greater than anything yet conceived by the human mind.' "'something combining in fearful and unnatural amalgamation "'hitherto supposed incompatible elements. "'The calling of the voices in Brockton Brown's novel of Veland is awful. "'So is the picture of the dweller on the threshold in Bulwer's Zanoni. "'But,' he added, shaking his head gloomily, "'there is something more horrible still than these.' "'Look here, Hammond,' I rejoined. "'Let us drop this kind of talk, for heaven's sake.' "'I don't know what's the matter with me tonight,' he replied.' "'but my brain is running upon all sorts of weird and awful thoughts. "'I feel as if I could write a story like Hoffman tonight "'if I were only master of a literary style. "'Well, if we are going to be hoffman in our talk, "'I'm off to bed. How sultry it is. "'Good night, Hammond. "'Good night, Harry. Pleasant dreams to you. "'To you, gloomy wretch, afrites, ghouls and enchanters.' "'We parted and each sought his respective chamber.' I undressed quickly and got into bed, taking with me, according to my usual custom, a book over which I generally read myself to sleep. I opened the volume as soon as I had laid my head upon the pillow and instantly flung it to the other side of the room. It was Gudon's History of Monsters, a curious French work which I had lately imported from Paris, but which, in the state of mind I had then reached, was anything but an agreeable companion. I resolved to go to sleep at once, "'so turning down my gas until nothing but a little blue point of light "'glimmered on the top of the tube, I composed myself to rest. "'The room was in total darkness. "'The atom of gas that still remained lighted "'did not illuminate a distance of three inches round the burner. "'I desperately drew my arm across my eyes, "'as if to shut out even the darkness, and tried to think of nothing. "'It was in vain. "'The confounded themes touched on by Hammond in the garden kept obtruding themselves on my brain. I battled against them. I erected ramparts of would-be blankness of intellect to keep them out. They still crowded upon me. While I was lying still as a corpse, hoping that by a perfect physical inaction I should hasten mental repose, an awful incident occurred. As something dropped, as it seemed, from the ceiling, plump upon my chest, and the next instant I felt two bony hands encircling my throat, endeavouring to choke me. I am no coward and am possessed of considerable physical strength. The suddenness of the attack, instead of stunning me, strung every nerve to its highest tension. My body acted from instinct before my brain had time to realise the terrors of my position. In an instant, I wound two muscular arms around the creature and squeezed it, with all the strength of despair, against my chest. In a few seconds, the bony hands that had fastened on my throat loosened their hold, and I was free to breathe once more. Then commenced a struggle of awful intensity. Immersed in the most profound darkness, totally ignorant of the nature of the thing by which I was so suddenly attacked, finding my grasp slipping every moment, by reason, it seemed to me, of the entire nakedness of my assailant, bitten with sharp teeth in the shoulder, neck and chest, having every moment to protect my throat against a pair of sinewy, agile hands, which my utmost efforts could not confine. These were a combination of circumstances to combat which required all the strength and skill and courage that I possessed. At last, after a silent, deadly, exhausting struggle, I got my assailant under by a series of incredible efforts of strength. Once pinned, with my knee on what I made out to be its chest, I knew that I was victor, I rested for a moment to breathe. I heard the creature beneath me panting in the darkness and felt the violent throbbing of a heart. It was apparently as exhausted as I was. That was one comfort. At this moment I remembered that I usually placed under my pillow, before going to bed, a large yellow silk pocket handkerchief for use during the night. I felt for it instantly. It was there. In a few seconds more I had, after a fashion, pinioned the creature's arms. I now felt tolerably secure. There was nothing more to be done but to turn on the gas, and having first seen what my midnight assailant was like, aroused the household. I will confess to being actuated by a certain pride in not giving the alarm before. I wished to make the capture alone and unaided. Never losing my hold for an instant, I slipped from the bed to the floor, dragging my captive with me. I had but a few steps to make to reach the gas burner, These I made with the greatest caution, holding the creature in a grip like a vice. At last I got within arm's length of the tiny speck of blue light which told me where the gas burner lay. Quick as lightning, I released my grasp with one hand and let on the full flood of light. Then I turned to look at my captive. I cannot even attempt to give any definition of my sensations the instant after I turned on the gas. I suppose I must have shrieked with terror, for in less than a minute afterward my room was crowded with the inmates of the house. I shudder now as I think of that awful moment. I saw nothing. Yes, I had one arm firmly clasped round a breathing, panting, corporeal shape, my other hand gripped with all its strength a throat as warm and apparently fleshy as my own. And yet, with this living substance in my grasp, with its body pressed against my own, and all in the bright glare of a large jet of gas, I absolutely beheld nothing, not even an outline a vapour. I do not even at this hour realise the situation in which I found myself. I cannot recall the astounding incident thoroughly. Imagination in vain tries to compass the awful paradox. It breathed. I, f- I felt its warm breath upon my cheek. It struggled fiercely. It had hands... They clutched me. Its skin was smooth like my own. There it lay, pressed close up against me, solid as stone, and yet utterly invisible. I wonder that I did not faint or go mad on the instant. Some wonderful instinct must have sustained me, for, absolutely, in place of loosening my hold on the terrible enigma, I seemed to gain an additional strength in my moment of horror, and tightened my grasp with such wonderful force that I felt the creature shivering with agony. Just then Hammond entered my room at the head of the household. As soon as he beheld my face, which I suppose must have been an awful sight to look at, he hastened forward, crying, Great heaven, Harry, what has happened? Hammond, Hammond, I cried. Come here, oh, this is awful. I've been attacked in bed by something or other, which I have hold of, but I can't see it. I can't see it. Hammond, doubtless struck by the unfeigned horror expressed in my countenance, made one or two steps forward with an anxious yet puzzled expression. A very audible titter burst from the remainder of my visitors. This suppressed laughter made me furious. To laugh at a human being in my position. It was the worst species of cruelty. Now I can understand why the appearance of a man struggling violently as it would seem, with an airy nothing, and calling for assistance against a vision... "'should have appeared ludicrous. "'Then so great was my rage against the mocking crowd "'that had I the power, "'I would have stricken them dead where they stood. "'Hammond! Hammond!' I cried again, despairingly. "'For God's sake, come to me. "'I can hold the the thing but a short while longer. "'It is overpowering me. Help me, help me!' "'Harry!' whispered Hammond, approaching me. "'You have been smoking too much.' "'I swear to you, Hammond,' "'This is no vision,' I answered, in the same low tone. "'Don't you see how it shakes my whole frame with its struggles? "'If you don't believe me, convince yourself. Feel it. Touch it.' Hammond advanced and laid his hand on the spot I indicated. A wild cry of horror burst from him. He had felt it. In a moment he had discovered, somewhere in my room, a long piece of cord, and was, the next instant, winding it and knotting it about the body of the unseen being that I clasped in my arms.' Harry, he said in a hoarse, agitated voice, for though he preserved his presence of mind, he was deeply moved. Harry, it's all safe now. You may let go, old fellow, if you're tired. The thing can't move. I was utterly exhausted, and I gladly loosened my hold. Hammond stood holding the ends of the cord that bound the invisible, twisted round his hand, while before him, self-supporting as it were, he beheld a rope laced and interlaced, and stretching tightly round a vacant space. I never saw a man look so thoroughly stricken with awe. Nevertheless, his face expressed all the courage and determination which I knew him to possess. His lips, although white, were set firmly, and one could perceive at a glance that, although stricken with fear, he was not daunted. The confusion that ensued among the guests of the house who were witnesses of this extraordinary scene between Hammond and myself who beheld the pantomime of binding this struggling something, who beheld me almost sinking from physical exhaustion when my task of jailer was over. The confusion and terror that took possession of the bystanders when they saw all this was beyond description. The weaker ones fled from the apartment, the few who remained clustered near the door and could not be induced to approach Hammond and his charge. Still incredulity broke out through their terror. They had not the courage to satisfy themselves, and yet they doubted. It was in vain that I begged of some of the men to come near and convince themselves by touch of the existence in that room of a living being which was invisible. They were incredulous, but they did not dare to undeceive themselves. How could a solid, living, breathing body be invisible, they asked. My reply was this. I gave a sign to Hammond and both of us, conquering our fearful repugnance to touch the invisible creature, lifted it from the ground, manacled as it was, and took it to my bed. Its weight was about that of a boy of fourteen. Now, my friends, I said, as Hammond and myself held the creature suspended over the bed, I can give you self-evident proof that here is a solid, ponderable body which, nevertheless, you cannot see. Be good enough to watch the surface of the bed attentively, I was astonished at my own courage in treating this strange event so calmly, but I had recovered from my first terror and felt a sort of scientific pride in the affair which dominated every other feeling. The eyes of the bystanders were immediately fixed on my bed. At a given signal, Hammond and I let the creature fall. There was the dull sound of a heavy body alighting on a soft mass. The timbers of the bed creaked. A deep impression marked itself distinctly on the pillow and on the bed itself. The crowd who witnessed this gave a sort of low, universal cry and rushed from the room. Hammond and I were left alone with our mystery. We remained silent for some time, listening to the low, irregular breathing of the creature on the bed and watching the rustle of the bedclothes as it impotently struggled to free itself from confinement. Then Hammond spoke. Harry, this is awful. Aye, awful. But not unaccountable. Not unaccountable? What do you mean? Such a thing has never occurred since the birth of the world. I know not what to think, Hammond. God grant that I am not mad, and that this is not an insane fantasy. Let us reason a little, Harry. Here is a solid body which we touch, but which we cannot see. The fact is so unusual that it strikes us with terror." Is there no parallel, though, for such a phenomenon? Take a piece of pure glass. It is tangible and transparent. A certain chemical coarseness is all that prevents its being so entirely transparent as to be totally invisible. It is not theoretically impossible, mind you, to make a glass which shall not reflect a single ray of light, a glass so pure and homogeneous in its atoms that the rays from the sun shall pass through it as they do through the air refracted but not reflected. We do not see the air, and yet we feel it. That's all very well, Hammond, but these are inanimate substances. Glass does not breathe, air does not breathe. This thing has a heart that palpitates, a will that moves it, lungs that play and inspire and respire. You forget the strange phenomena of which we have so often heard of late, answered the doctor gravely. At the meetings called spirit circles, Invisible hands have been thrust into the hands of those persons round the table, warm, fleshy hands that seem to pulsate with mortal life. What? Do you think, then, that this thing is? I don't know what it is, was the solemn reply, but please the gods I will, with your assistance, thoroughly investigate it. We watched together, smoking many pipes all night long, by the bedside of the unearthly being that tossed and panted "'until it was apparently wearied out. "'Then we learned by the low regular breathing "'that it slept. "'The next morning the house was all astir. "'The boarders congregated on the landing outside my room "'and Hammond and myself were lions. "'We had to answer a thousand questions "'as to the state of our extraordinary prisoner, "'for, as yet, not one person in the house except ourselves "'could be induced to set foot in the apartment.' creature was awake. This was evidenced by the convulsive manner in which the bedclothes were moved in its efforts to escape. There was something truly terrible in beholding, as it were, those second-hand indications of the terrible writhings and agonised struggles for liberty, which themselves were invisible. Hammond and myself had racked our brains during the long night to discover some means by which we might realise the shape and general appearance of the enigma, As well as we could make out by passing our hands over the creature's form, its outlines and lineaments were human. There was a mouth, a round smooth head without hair, a nose, which, however, was little elevated above the cheeks, and its hands and feet felt like those of a boy. At first, we thought of placing the being on a smooth surface and tracing its outline with chalk, as shoemakers trace the outline of the foot. This plan was given up as being of no value, such an outline would give not the slightest idea of its confirmation. A happy thought struck me. We would take a cast of it in plaster of Paris. This would give us the solid figure and satisfy all our wishes. But how to do it? The movements of the creature would disturb the setting of the plastic covering and distort the mould. Another thought. Why not give it chloroform? It had respiratory organs. That was evident by its breathing. Once reduced to a state of insensibility, we could do with it what we would. Dr. was sent for, and after the worthy physician had recovered from the first shock of amazement, he proceeded to administer the chloroform. In three minutes afterward, we were enabled to remove the fetters from the creature's body, and a well-known modeler of this city was busily engaged in covering the invisible form with the moist clay. In five minutes more, we had a mould, and before evening... A rough facsimile of the mystery. It was shaped like a man, distorted, uncouth, and horrible, but still a man. It was small, not over four feet and some inches in height, and its limbs revealed a muscular development that was unparalleled. Its face surpassed in hideousness anything I have ever seen. Gustave Doré or Calot or Tori Johannot never conceived anything so horrible. There is a face in one of the latter's illustrations to Un voyage où il vous plaira, which somewhat approaches the countenance of this creature, but does not equal it. It was the physiognomy of which I should have fancied a ghoul to be. It looked as if it were capable of feeding on human flesh. Having satisfied our curiosity and bound everyone in the house to secrecy, it became a question what was to be done with our enigma. It was impossible that we should keep such a horror in our house. It was equally impossible that such an awful being should be let loose upon the world. I confess that I would gladly have voted for the creature's destruction. But who would shoulder the responsibility? Who would undertake the execution of this horrible semblance of a human being? Day after day this question was deliberated gravely. The boarders all left the house. "'Mrs. Moffat was in despair and threatened Hammond and myself "'with all sorts of legal penalties if we did not remove the horror. "'Our answer was, "'We will go if you like, but we decline taking this creature with us. "'Remove it yourself, if you please. "'It appeared in your house. "'On you the responsibility rests.' "'To this there was, of course, no answer. "'Mrs. Moffat could not obtain for love or money "'a person who would even approach the mystery.' The most singular part of the transaction was that we were entirely ignorant of what the creature habitually fed on. Everything in the way of nutriment that we could think of was placed before it, but was never touched. It was awful to stand by, day after day, and see the clothes toss, and hear the hard breathing, and know that it was starving. Ten, twelve days, a fortnight passed, and it still lived. The pulsations of the heart, however, were daily growing fainter, "'and had now nearly ceased altogether. "'It was evident that the creature was dying for want of sustenance. "'While this terrible life-struggle was going on, I felt miserable. "'I could not sleep of nights. "'Horrible as the creature was, "'it was pitiful to think of the pangs it was suffering. "'At last it died. "'Hammond and I found it cold and stiff one morning in the bed. "'The heart had ceased to beat, the lungs to inspire. "'We hastened to bury it in the garden.' It was a strange funeral, the dropping of that viewless corpse into the damp hole, the cast of its form I gave to Dr. (coughs) who keeps it in his museum in 10th Street. As I am on the eve of a long journey from which I may not return, I have drawn up this narrative of an event the most singular that has ever come to my knowledge. Note. It was rumoured that the proprietors of a well-known museum in this city had made arrangements with Dr. (coughs) to exhibit to the public the singular cast which Mr. Escott deposited with him. So extraordinary a history cannot fail to attract universal attention. That was the short story What Was It? by the amazing and sadly underrated Irish writer of the 19th century, Fitz James O'Brien. Now, just before we wrap up, I have a few elements of the story that I'd like to pick up on um, before we finish. So, I did pose a question at the beginning. Uh, as you are listening to it, do you or do you not feel that this story is indeed a bona fide case of what we would now call a psychic detective So we have the main character deciding to go into a haunted house to investigate. However, for me, I don't feel this quite makes the cut. Uh, For me, a psychic detective is somebody who does this either professionally or habitually, or at at very least, uh, they make a habit of doing it, as it's just a single story. And we get no indication that the main character does this frequently or has any particular interest in the supernatural, beyond the fact that he's read uh, the book The Night Side of Nature, which all of his uh, his compatriots seem to be giving him a hard time about. Well, aside from that, we don't seem to have any indication that he does this frequently or that he has any special expertise in it. Um, certainly not that he has much experience in it. So, for me, I'm going to stick with what I've said before on previous episodes and say that, for me, at least, the original psychic detective, uh, loosely considered, remains Dr. Martin Isselius from uh, the book Through a Glass Darkly by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. So even if O'Brien doesn't get the prize, well, at least it goes to another Irishman. So I I can be happy with that. I was, however, happy to hear a reference to spiritualism in this story, so late in the story uh, the two main leads uh, mention that they are, of course, living at a time when it's quite common for people in darkened rooms to undergo seances and for manifestations of invisible hands to appear to them. Spiritualism, of course, was and is a, a religion that uh, got started in upstate New York. I, I am presuming that this story as well is happening in New York or in New York City, being as that is where O'Brien was living at the time. Spiritualism, of course, started in a, at a place called Hydesville in upstate New York in the late 1840s with a family called the Fox. The Fox family, there were uh, two or three sisters who started hearing rapping noises in their house. They they experienced um, what we might now recognise as kind of poltergeist phenomena, but having a, a few uh, teen and preteen girls in the house uh, and being messers, I guess, they started to talk to the spirit by rapping back and trying to... Um, to get it to reply to them they came up with a system of numbers so you know once for yes twice for no that sort of thing and really that's where the whole thing uh, took off from it just it just really went crazy after that it took over america and uh, by the 1850s at the latest it was spreading across england and across europe as well so and by the time o'brien was writing this story in the 1850s it would have been an extremely well recognized phenomena uh, anywhere in america really now, there's an amazing scene towards the beginning when the narrator and uh, his, his compatriot, uh, Hammond, have an incredible discussion in which they name-drop just loads of writers and books from from the time, uh, people who would have been writing stuff that was connected to the supernatural. So I'm just going to say a few things about some of them. So they mention The Night Side of Nature. That's the book that the narrator seems to have and that everybody else wants Um, and that they're all trying to find out what he knows about it. So he's implying that it's an incredibly fashionable book, and it was. The The Night Side of Nature by Catherine Crowe was a hugely popular book um, at this time, and it it covered a a whole range of what we would now call mysterious phenomena. There's spirits and ghosts, there are doppelgangers, apparitions, haunted houses, and poltergeists. So a lot of these things are maybe older than some of us might uh, have imagined. But it was, yeah, it was hugely, hugely popular and very, very influential um, in its time. I'm going to give you a little quote from the book here. Um, uh, Crow says, It will seem to many persons very inconsistent with their ideas of the dignity of the spirit that they should appear and act in the manner I have described and shall describe further. <laughs> I quite like this. She then goes on to say, I have heard it objected that we cannot suppose God would permit the dead to return merely to frighten the living, and that it is showing him little reverence to imagine he would suffer them to come on in su- such trifling errands or demean themselves in so undignified a fashion. Something that has occurred to me before. If you've ever spoken to a skeptic who who would say something to the extent of, you, you know, if, if these are if if there's really a, a supernatural abilities in an afterlife, and and this is what they do, they come back to like knock on walls or you know knock over some plates or whatever it is that poltergeists do, it is kind of funny. So, also mentioned in this conversation is a novel called Weiland, or Weiland, it's got a German name, but it's an American novel by a writer called Charles Brockton Brown from 1798. Now, this is an early, it's a flat-out early American novel, full stop being it, being as the, the American novel is sort of often considered to have begun with. You know, something like Uncle Tom's Cabin or maybe even Ben-Hur in 1870, that late if you want to go. But this one, Vyland, is, is considered to be an early, if not the first, American Gothic novel. So, very strange book. Um, one of its main themes is about uh, religious extremism or re- religious fanaticism. One of its main characters is somebody who starts his own religion and um, sort of about how people get manipulated um, with this sort of thinking but there's a lot of the classic gothic tropes about uh, families with dark secrets uh, secret elements of history uh, people hearing voices and going mad and that sort of thing they also mentioned a book called zanoni by i think they call him by lytton now that's edward bulwer lytton so i do know a little bit about him he was quite a well-known writer um, in the mid to late 19th century and um, uh, the first thing you have to mention when you talk about Paul Litton is that most people might have heard of the phrase it was a dark and stormy night it seems to be this like standard uh, opening for, uh, traditional bad opening for a bad novel and he wrote that um, and there's I believe there's a literary short or a literary competition still going where people try and write bad opening uh, paragraphs and it's named after him or something but i will say probably his most influential work was not that but it was a book called the coming race from 1870 i have read that and um, it's it's a classic kind of hollow earth novel or at least underground race novel Um, and a bit of a lost race novel as well. So it is all about uh, explorers discovering that there's a race of people living underneath the earth in caverns. Unusually, unlike most of the sort of colonial-flavoured versions of those stories from that time, in the coming race, the race that they discover are actually better than us. You know, the the lost world novels and lost race novels and hollow earth novels are usually about white um, Europeans or Americans discovering amazing new lands but finding out that hey the people who live there are you know uh, unsophisticated natives and we can easily take them over with our guns and our technology and our christianity uh, but but in bulwer lytton's book it's very strange it's very different the the people who live under the world under the ground the coming race are better than us they have better tech than us they are more pure more godly if you like and um, the, the book ends in this sort of cliffhanger note that, you know, we can expect them to come up and take over from us any day now. It had a long afterlife as well. The, if you've ever heard of the concept of rill, that comes from, uh, comes from that book as well. A lot of ideas that Lytton posed in the book simply as science fiction devices, other people then took seriously after the fact. People sort of imagined that, you know, he was onto something, that he was trying to communicate truth through fiction, um, I've I've had he's often described as being an occultist, but I've not come across any hard evidence that he really believed this stuff or that he was proposing it seriously. I myself don't believe that he did, but other people took this idea of this magical force called vril, which the underground people use, and they went to town with it. Uh, interestingly, the one of the longer legacies of this is bovril, which bo. Bov from, from, from Bo meaning cow and Vril from the book uh, The Coming Race and the powerful le- electrical force that they use called frill. so together that is bovril. so it's this powerful stuff that is made from, from cow products basically so yeah you probably didn't know that but bovril Vril uh, has this kind of weird occult uh, uh, origin story to it so in Zanoni the book which is mentioned in What Was It uh, it's a book set during the French Revolution, and starring a bunch of Rosicrucians. So again, getting into the sort of occult stuff. The Rosicrucians, if you don't know, are a supposed secret society uh, that existed from, I think, about the 1600s, 1500s, and uh, on like that. And uh, some people believe that they're still going. They're a staple of Dan Brown-type fiction. and um, Umberto Eco, if you're into slightly slightly better stuff, if if I allow myself a moment of being snobby. They also mention a, a writer named Hoffman. They, they describe the situation they're in as being hoffman They're referring to uh, Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffman. So he was a German romantic author. He was considered to be a Gothic author and a musician and a, um, a writer of music as well. He wrote a lot of gothic fiction including stuff that dealt with vampires and that sort of thing but i would say his most important legacy now is that he wrote a book called the nutcracker and the mouse king and that's where the ballet the nutcracker and the the famous music from it that's where all of that comes from so really really interesting scene there where o'brien is kind of flexing his literary chops and basically name dropping as many eh, as many famous sp- spooky literary authors as he can get in there you know, I admit that I came up short on one reference, so you may recall in the short story when the main character is sitting in his bed, he's going to sleep, and he realises the book he's chosen to read for the night is called A History of Monsters by a Frenchman called Goudon. Now, I looked this up, and um, oh, he, he then throws it across the bed because he realises he's so spooked out he couldn't possibly read a book like this. I can't find it. Um, I've looked it up, and every reference I can find takes me back to... The short story it's James O'Brien. That seems to be the only place where it comes from. So if anybody out there knows who Kudan is, or what the history of monsters is, or whether it's something he just made up, the way, you know, 100 years later, Lovecraft would list off a, a list of real historical grimoires and then stick his own fake one in there. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know. Anyway, it's time to wrap things up. This is running long. You've been listening to an episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, uh, all the usual things apply folks you know the deal it really really helps us out if you um retweet anything we say on twitter if you give us some likes uh, and specifically some stars and reviews wherever it is that you listen to podcasts always helps a whole lot as i'm sure you're bored of being told on all of the podcasts that you already like if you do want to get in touch with us uh, on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Send in any strange stories, anything weird that's ever happened to you. And as always, we promise to believe you. So thanks for listening. Across this waste For something seems to follow me Cheer up now, Maud And thanks be God We nigh have passed The gallows tree We nigh have passed The gallows tree He kissed her lip And spurred his whip And fast they fled Across the lee But fain the heel Something leapt from the gallows tree Oh, something leapt from the gallows tree Give me your cloak, your nightly cloak That warmed you off beyond the sea For the wind is bold, my bones are old And I am cold on the gallows tree Oh, I am cold on the gallows tree We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.